This is Shop Talk Radio, episode 32, with Max Lugavere. Welcome to Shop Talk Radio. I'm your host, Nick Onkin, and on this show, we bring you inspiring guests to dive underneath the hood of the creative entrepreneurial lifestyle to bridge the gap between art, commerce, and inspiration. What is up, Shop Talk Creatives? Today, I'm excited to bring to you today's guest, Max Lugavir. He is a documentary filmmaker, TV host, and social activist. And what I love about Max is that he is using his filmmaking skills and TV hosting skills to make a positive impact in the world. He started a show called Acting Disruptive where he interviews different influencers like Jared Leto and Jessica Alba who are really using their celebrity to make an impact in the world themselves. And it's a fascinating show, so check it out maxlugavari.com. Max is a super cool guy and he is working on a new thing as an advocate for early Alzheimer's prevention, which means a lot to me because my grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's disease and I'm interested in learning more about the issue and what Max has to talk about in the second half of the podcast is how... Alzheimer's is actually a form of type 3 diabetes and can be prevented starting in your early 30s by what you eat and how you live and how you take care of yourself. So we dive a bit more deeper into that. I wanted to give you guys an update of what I've been up to so that you can get to know me a little bit more. And recently what I've been excited about in my world is we've been working on a short film on me for MTV Breaks, which is a new thing they've got coming out on artists and photographers and fashion designers, kind of other creative entrepreneurs, much like this podcast. So it's been a fun adventure. We've been filming piece by piece and we started filming and doing voiceovers a couple weeks ago and now we are working on various items like we filmed me doing art on the roof which was a lot of fun and that's been a new exciting venture and experiment in my life is this mixed medium artwork that I've been working on. And I learned through my friend James Goldcrown, who is our guest on episode 30. So check it out if you want to learn more about mixed medium. Uh, I've been learning how to wheat paste. So I've been taking my own photos and printing them out large scale, black and white, and experimenting, spray painting over them, wheat pasting them to canvases and doing different things. So more to come. But without further ado, let's jump into hearing more about Max, his adventures, and his documentary filmmaking. Let's get to it. What's up, guys? We got Max Lugavir here in the studio today. Max is a super interesting guy, so welcome on the show. Hey, what up? 
Um, Max is has his hand in a bunch of different things, but uh, let him give us the lowdown <laughs> on who he is, what he does, what where you know. Well, let's just start with you know stuff that you're you're creating that you've created throughout your life. Give us a little overview, and then we'll go kind of dig back a little bit deeper. Yeah, awesome. Well, first off, it's it's really cool to be here. Uh, I love your podcast. Huge fan. Um, so I think a lot of people know that I uh, spent five years at Al Gore's TV network current uh, back in the day, which was fun. Um, but most recently, I after leaving current, I, um, you know, I decided to set out on my own and create my own content. And uh, the most recent project uh, was something that I created called acting disruptive, which I also hosted. And that was a series that uh, it was the first, you know, purely web series thing that I've ever done. And I was really, uh, you know, taken aback by the success of the show. It ended up being like AOL's top viewed series of, wow. uh, of 2013. And I don't know if they have any of their, you know, more recent series to, to top that, but we had like 26 million views. It was crazy. And, uh, you know, what was so cool about it was that it was a really elevated conversation, you know, it was about entrepreneurship and business and innovation, but with like a really unique mainstream angle. It was like mm. me talking to tech disruptors that happen to also be very well-known um, actors and actresses in Hollywood. So like one episode was me and Jessica Alba talking about, you know, how the Honest Company has disrupt disrupted the sort of home care industry. Mm. Me and Adrian Grenier talking about Shift, which is like this company that curates eco-friendly uh, lifestyle products. Um, so it was really cool. There was like a really sort of broad range of topics that we got to talk about. And uh, we finished that up in the early part of this year. Mm. And... Um, and that was a blast. And then sort of, you know, uh, over, over arcing the sort of, you know, all that video stuff that I've been doing, I think, uh, it's no secret that I've also, um, tried my hand at music, which has mm. been uh, a really amazing experience. Actually, one of the things that I'm most proud of is the fact that I released an album four years ago called one year later. Mm. And, uh, that was really cool as well. So yeah, it's sort of a, you know, I'm a I'm a creator. I'm a you know I consider myself an artist, um, storyteller, and uh, I think I have that burden of like creative entitlement where like if something piques my interest, you know, like I can't sleep until I'm fully down the rabbit hole, and I'm like, mm. you know, so I've sort of become like, you know, an expert or something. That's like that sort of OCD, like the burden of artisthood. I think yeah. you know. That's Which I'm sure you have because you're multi-talented too. I mean, you're doing so many cool things. Well, thank you. Yeah, I, I totally resonate with you on that because I mean, now I'm doing art stuff. I'm still doing like photography still the most first and foremost, most passionate thing I'm about. But then we're starting the I started the podcast, which um, I was inspired because I get to have interesting guests on like you to talk about you know, creative entrepreneurship and interesting, you know, kind of the, the idea of, of Shop Talk Radio is to pull out and interview people and talk about the good life, the rich life and yeah. not rich in money, but rich in fulfillment. Yeah. And, and what does that mean? And creativity is a big part of that health and wellness, which we're going to talk about here. And I'm super excited to get into that. Yeah. Um, but I'll, let's rewind a little bit where, so give us a little background on where you're from and how you got into filmmaking and cool. you were, what were you doing at current? Yeah. So, um, so at current, I was sort of like the, I don't know, the, like the, the Anderson Cooper of the network back when it was like, 
or one of them, you know, back when it was about democratizing media, it was a very ahead of its time, uh, sort of business model. Hmm. Um, and so I had, you know, I was sort of one of the omnipresent VJs. I was on it all the time. I had two shows on it. It was a really amazing post-college experience, you know, and, and I sort of got my, the most possible mileage from the experience. I learned a ton. I got to work with really, really talented people. Um, and so in that sense, it was a dream. Ultimately, Current didn't succeed. You know, it sold mm. to become ultimately Al Jazeera, uh, America. And, uh, but that being said, like, I have nothing but glowing things to say about my experience and, mm. and you know, everybody that I got to work with there. So that was just, that was just awesome for me. Um, and then before that, I was a student at University of Miami. Mm. Yeah, at UM, I was, um, I double majored in film and psychology. Because uh, when I started college, I was a biology major. I, I was sort of pre-med. I was really interested in health and medicine. Um, but then I realized this love of, you know, storytelling. And, uh, you know, I had some sort of creative things that I wanted to, to pursue. And I realized that, like, tying myself up with, like, the hardcore academia that, you know, going the medical school route would entail would ultimately, at that time, not lead to my happiness, you know. So I ended up switching to film and then, you know, to sort of get my science fix, uh, studied psychology as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how did you trans transfer into filmmaking? Well, I, uh, it sort of a dream scenario, me and a college buddy, we, we co-created a film, uh, as undergraduates called textures of selfhood. Hmm. And, uh, we basically used that film to throw ourselves at the powers that were at current at the time and uh we were like guys hire us you know we're like we're passionate we're storytellers we fully believe in in you know the mission of the network and uh you know and as crazy as that sounds out of the thousands of people that did the same thing we were the two that got this gig and uh yeah really incredible story like you know and we definitely got a lot of uh cool press out of it you know because we felt like it was a very unique sort of thing you know yeah so what do you think it was that catapulted them into taking your story and your your film well the film was about democratizing spirituality i've always so when i was in college i was very much obsessed with and i don't think people know this because i've never really talked about it before but i was obsessed with uh the writing of a guy named jidu krishnamurti Hmm. um who wrote many uh, books that I think are just amazing and were very, um, that resonated very, very strongly with me during my formative philosophical years. Uh, one of them was called, um, awakening of intelligence. And then another was freedom from the known. And, uh, and his central thesis is that truth is a pathless land. And that, um, struck a chord with me growing up in, in New York to two, you know, Jewish parents that worked very hard, bless Mm. their souls to, uh, to uh to instill this appreciation for you know the jewish religion in me and um you know i have always sort of had a a seeker's mentality about spirituality and it just all became very clear to me once i stumbled upon the work of krishnamurti that truth is a is a pathless land you know you you sort of you can only come to it through your own sort of realization and, and understanding yourself and mm. the world outside. Um, and long story longer, I, uh, 
basically created uh, this film at University of Miami that was about all of those ideas that were sort of, you know, bubbling just under the surface at the time. And the backdrop was South Beach because mm. I was like, you know, 21 and just having wow. the time of my life, you know, there in this completely hedonistic sandbox. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure you've spent a lot of time in, in Miami, but mm-hmm. Miami is sort of like if a Hieronymus Bosch painting could come alive <laughs> incarnate into the form of a city filled with beautiful South Americans and, you know, Europeans. I mean, that is that is Miami. So you can get in a lot of trouble there for sure. But I, <laughs> again, I've always sort of taken like a, you know, like a more, I don't know, like philosophical. I've always, you know, been a pretty self-aware guy. And so like, even though I was partying in Miami, I was also kind of like, doing it consciously and that is what this film was about <laughs> essentially and uh i submitted it to current and yeah they hired me and my my co-conspirator on that project to anch- to anchor the network together fantastic that's yeah. a great story thanks i love that you know and, and that kind of goes into what a lot of this podcast is all about is how do you make money with your art and everybody's got a different story and i love that you know you're making films and how have you managed to make money through filmmaking it's a great question i mean i have been extremely lucky and i you know i know that and i you know i'm very you know grateful for that every day that uh the opportunities that have come my way have been this this combination of sort of opportunity um you know, luck for sure. There's a, there's a definitely a luck component just in terms of the timing, but I've always worked really hard to seize those opportunities and to, you know, and to take risks. I think that's very important, um, for any creative, Hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, I've had some projects that have done better than others. Certainly, you know, um, acting disruptive, you know, did really well. Uh, my music, project i you know definitely like recouped the investment Mm -hmm. but um you know that wasn't i wouldn't say that it was a financial success as much (laughs) as it was like a spiritual success you know an existential artistic creative success you know greater than than many of the more financially successful things that i've done and so um i think it's a great question how do you how do you monetize your art i think that today the artist has to be just as much a business person and entrepreneur and um and that's what that's what i learned through the production of well through my own you know journey but then also in doing acting disruptive you know Mm -hmm. um it's not enough to just be an artist you've got to be enterprising you've got to know how to work social media you know you've got to say yes to things you've got to put yourself Mm -hmm. you've got to expose yourself to as much serendipity uh, as humanly possible. And, you know, you can engineer serendipity. You can go to places that have curated crowds. You know, you can choose carefully who you follow on things like Twitter, which is what I do, you know, so that if there's ever any cool opportunity that pops up on my Twitter feed, I, you know, it doesn't get lost in the noise. So Mm -hmm. I think that like making sure that you curate your, your news feeds and your environment. I mean, I think that's definitely very important. Yeah, I really like that. And that's something that I've been very interested in. I'd love to hear like a little bit deeper cut of how do you engineer serendipity first? So let's let's go there. Like how have you done that for yourself beyond, you know, curating your Twitter feed? How do you do that in like real life? I mean, real life outside the digital world. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in the most basic way, like attracts like. And so I, you know, 
I like to hang out with friends that I think, you know, inspire me and in a lot of ways might be, you know, people that inspire me, people that I think I can learn from, you know, mm. I love that quote, uh, you know, if you're this, if you find yourself in a room where you're the smartest person, you're in the wrong room. Mm. Um, and so, you know, part of the reason why I have moved back from LA to New York is that, you know, I feel like in New York, <laughs> this is not, I'm not, you know, dissing LA at all, but like, I find that when I'm in New York, I'm very frequently not the smartest person in the room. Mm. And, uh, and that always keeps me on my toes. I feel like I grow tremendously just from just the smallest like interactions that I have here, you know? And, uh, and so I always seek out rooms where I'm like the dumbest person in the room. <laughs> and though, you know, I find myself in some pretty, some pretty intense rooms, Yeah, I you imagine. know, by living that philosophy. But, um, but I think in the end it's worth it, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that, that takes me to another question is like, how do you, especially on the come up when you're first starting using that approach, how do you connect with people that you feel are way beyond your reach in a certain sense, especially, you know, cause when you're young, you're starting out, you know, there's, there's, it's, it can be, uh, intimidating. Yeah, you're right. Um, I don't know. I think again, you just have to take risks and, you know, be humble, be kind. Um, and don't be afraid to appear vulnerable, you know, like, mm. um, I mean, one example that I can give, uh, I, you know, I have always been a fan of the TED conference mm -hmm. and back in like 2008 or whenever it was, and this is the first, you know, those early experiences tend to be the ones that stick with you. So, I mean, you know, I'm sure this happens to me, you know, I'm sure that I've sent a million, you know, had a million more situations like this, but I think the, the best one that I could think of as an example is I've always been a friend, a uh, fan of the Ted conference. And in 2008, I heard that they were launching an event called Pangea day, mm -hmm. which was a four hour broadcast to unite the world via the power of film that they were going to air on TV networks around the world. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, if anybody can accomplish a goal like that, it's the Ted conference. And, you know, it was very in line with, um, the kind of things that I want to do, you know, as a filmmaker, but as a filmmaker who, you know, puts social impact front and center, you know, in terms of the projects that I, that I gravitate towards. And so I was like, God, if there's like even a crumb of this event that I can like hold on to and be a part of, then I would just be like the happiest person in the world. And so I think at the time I sent literally like a cold email to the TED conference who I didn't, you know, I didn't know anybody at the TED conference at that time, um, begging to be a part of the, the event, hmm. um, maybe, you know, present something, I don't know. And, uh, and yeah, so I didn't know anybody at the TED conference. I sent this like completely cold email and the response that I got, you know, I attached my press kit. Of course, you know, you make yourself sound as like, you know, high profile as you can, you know, given the circumstances, <laughs> you know, um, you've got to craft the perception. My dad always says, um, an ounce of perception equals 10 pounds of performance or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I think, I mean, I don't know if that is true in all circumstances, but you know, you've, you've got to like, you know, when you're applying for a job, you know, fancy cover letter. 
And so I sent this email, attached my press kit, and uh, I ended up getting to co-host the entire event with Lisa Ling and my current TV co-host mm. and June Arunga, who's like a, a filmmaker um, doing incredible work. And uh, it was a dream. It was a dream scenario, That's you know, amazing. all from like sending an email, taking a risk and not being afraid to, you know, be ignored or yeah. get told no. You just have to like take risks, you know? Yeah. I, yeah. I love that. I love what you said about crafting your perception how do you craft your perception for different things you know in business and and even creative entrepreneurship when you're putting yourself out there man such a good question i think you know it's you just it's today you know like for everything from fashion to your twitter feed you know like the clothes on your back to the you know your twitter feed and the kinds of things that you tweet about all sort of funnels into this, you know, the, the idea of the personal brand. Right. Mm. And so I don't know. I think just being conscious of that, being conscious of the fact that like you are a brand, you know, and, um, not like in a bad way, you know, but in the sense that like, you know, you, you want to curate your, the kinds of things that you're into and your, you know, your message you want sort of as focused a message as possible because that makes the message more powerful and impactful in the end. Yeah. So I think there are many, there are many benefits to that. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people these days, the idea of a personal brand is going to probably, you know, make a lot of people roll their eyes. But, um, I think it's important. Like today I'm very obsessed. I mean, I've always been obsessed with like health and wellness and stuff, but uh, brain health has been something that's been on my mind a lot. Mm. Um, how meta is that? That's like crazy. <laughs> uh, and so I've, you know, I've been, become very conscious of that. I want to reach influencers, you know, that are, that are in that space that I look up to and respect and learn from. And mm -hmm. so, um, I know that they're going to be looking at me the same way as I'm looking at them. And so I try to keep my, you know, my feed and all the things that I'm sort of promoting, uh, in line with that idea just so that you know you you get taken seriously and i realize like you know we all um you know what is that quote you know i'm large i contain multitudes you know i want to also be tweeting about the you know like the cat videos that i love you know just as much as anybody else and stuff like that but um but if you want to make an impact i think it's it's worth uh you know making sure that your message is as focused as possible yeah that's good i mean i'm definitely a believer in the personal brand i mean there's so much noise out there now especially digital noise and yeah. i feel like the more that you curate yourself and you curate what you put out there with a focus and a vision and a point of view you're gonna get more recognition from that yeah i think so too so, yeah and i just you know i i think it's like just we live in an age when like just having a good idea can become a platform in and of itself, you know, mm. and ideas spread at 140 characters on Twitter in real time. They're powerful. Yeah. There's power in a, in a, in a good idea. And, um, and I think that, you know, we have tools available at our disposal that, you know, that are just incomprehensibly amazing and they're only getting more amazing. And I think that, you know, it, I guess it's like a skill, you know, learning how to best, how to use them for best effect. Yeah. It's interesting how technology has changed the game. Yeah. You're so right. I mean, it's changed the game in, in 
multiple way, good ways and bad ways and and I guess I guess not it's not good or bad it's just cause and effect I think I mean I'm a techno optimist I'm a I'm definitely like I love technology I've always loved technology I think that in the right hands technology can do infinite good um yeah. in the wrong hands you know it's questionable but at the end of the day I think that humans are inherently good and um empathetic and so I think I think I think we're only going to I mean, I like to think that that good things will will come of sort of just the exponential rate at which technology seems to be accelerating these days. Yeah. Um, there's a great analogy that Ray Kurzweil always uses. I love Ray, futurist, you know, coined the idea of the singularity. Uh, he always says that fire can either burn you or cook your food. And I think that's a good metaphor for, <laughs> right? That's genius. Yeah. I mean, it's a good metaphor for technology. It's like fire, you know? Yeah. But I think that's a good tech, uh, good um, analogy for a lot of things. I mean, you can use things to, as tools to your advantage yeah. if you see it, choose to see it that way. Yeah. And I mean, there's certain people certain things i mean i i've been doing this leadership class out in la and there's certain there's people that use it as a tool and people that use it as a religion and yeah. i think when you can separate the two you can use it to your advantage yeah i mean look at this podcast that we're doing i mean this is like thanks to technology right like i'm sure this didn't cost as much as like a studio at abbey road you know <laughs> yet the sound is amazing and you know i think that's just like creativity has become democratized thanks to technology technology you know, it brings people together. It allows people to be more fully expressed. Mm. Um, you know, and we tend to think about technology as like microchip chips and transistors and things like that. But technology is also like electric guitars are technology, you know, yeah. pianos are technology. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, if anything, it's like, it's sort of a, an extension of, of our, you know, minds yeah. and, you know, um, and so I think it's great. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's segue back a little bit into the um, the disruptive. Uh, where did you where did you get the idea for that? How did you how did you come up with that and create it and and get it going? Good question. So I how did I come up with it? Well, I guess you know, like I um, was living in LA at the time, and I recognized this pattern uh, that. You know, I think a lot of people, at, you know, before we did Acting Disruptive, you know, I guess most people would think of Ashton Kutcher as being like, you know, the archetypal, you know, Hollywood celebrity guy who's investing in like a lot of technology. I mean, he definitely does a lot of that for sure. But um, but I became friendly with Adrian Grenier mm -hmm. uh, and Jared Leto and I'd known Moby sometime before that. And you know, these three guys who most people see as being extremely talented uh, artists, which they are, um, since I got to sort of know them on a more personal level, um, I learned that they're very interested in technology as well. In fact, they all, all three of them have tech startups. And so hmm. um, it was just, you know, like a pattern that I recognized. I think that's what creativity really is. It's pattern recognition. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I think when you're more creative, you tend to see patterns where fewer people do, you know, mm. but in any case, I, uh, I thought that that could be a really cool series. Yeah. And around the same time I was approached by Tribeca, Tribeca Enterprises, which of course, you know, runs the, the film festival here in New York. Um, they were sort of looking to get into the content game 
and I guess they were fans of my work at Current before that. And they initially wanted to, well, we were, they initially sort of brought up the idea of me helping more bigger picture with them in their content game. But I, uh, you know, was still living in LA at the time. And so I pitched them this idea of a web series and they, you know, fell in love with it and they found a sponsor. That sponsor was AOL. And, uh, and because I was sort of the co-creator and the host, you know, I got to, um, really sculpt the the vibe of the show which i'm very proud of you know it mm. sort of had the uh the tone of a youtube biopic more so than any show anyone's ever seen about entrepreneurship yeah. and business and so um and so yeah so that was uh that was really cool AOL sponsored it and then city ended up being another one of our sponsors and mm. um yeah, it was really cool. And I got to meet a ton of people. I got to meet I got to meet Jessica Alba, who's amazing. <laughs> that she is. That she is. Um, I got to meet who else? Rain Wilson was really funny. That was a good time shooting that. Uh so it was cool, you know. Yeah. It felt like a really natural extension from my work at current, you know. It was like content that's like definitely like entertaining and fun and funny, but smart at its core, you know. Yeah. I had, you know, like when you're, when you're working in LA, like you meet a lot of people obviously that are trying to make it as, as actors, but then you meet a lot of people that are also like hosts, you know, trying to be hosts. Mm-hmm. And I've never considered myself a TV host, yeah. you know, even though that's what I was doing and that's what I was like doing to, to pay the rent, um, you know, at current, uh, I've never had any interest whatsoever in, you know, celebrity culture red carpet reporting anything like that even remotely close and i've worked really hard to distance myself from that because you know obviously like there's money to be made in that space but i've always been a lot more cautious with my brand and you know like again you know having a focused sort of message for your personal brand like i you know have sort of things that i'm passionate about and opinions and i always felt like unless i was really careful with my brand that message could be muddied Mm. you know um Yet this sort of entrepreneurship angle was the one angle that I felt really comfortable having a celebrity-oriented show. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, the show was not about their movies or about the latest gossip about their personal lives. It was about the really cool shit that they were doing. And we got to talk about it. And I think they really appreciated that too. That's why like they were tweeting the hell out of our episodes and, you know, um, and, uh, and so, yeah, so that was a really cool experience. I feel really, really proud of that. That's great. I love that. And I mean, that. so you take that. One thing I love that you said was uh, creativity is recognizing patterns. Yeah. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Like, what, do you have an example of what you what you mean by that? Um. Well, I think, you know, it's like we all come from unique backgrounds and we're all interested in a, you know, broad palette of things, you know? Um, and so I think the creative individual can connect dots between disparate ideas in a way that, you know, nobody else can do because nobody else is them, you know, I hope that made sense, but it's like, but you know, I mean, I, uh, let me try to give you an example. I mean, you know, I think acting disruptive is is a good example of that. You know, like I, I, my career had been, you know, 
had been this unique hybrid of, you know, creating stories and content that spreads, but also being like smart and interesting. And so that's led to me being in a lot of unique situations where I'm getting to talk and hang out with like, quote unquote, celebrities, but garnered like sort of a respect from them that I think mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't have had perhaps if the content and the sort of hook that over the years I've been able to hang my hat on wasn't at its core smart and mm-hmm. and um, had this sort of social impact component. And, you know, I'm also really interested in technology and innovation. And, uh, and so they were also doing like these interesting tech things. And so I was able to put two and two together and, you know, sort of the right opportunity opened up with Tribeca. And so those were dots that I feel like only I was able to connect both mm-hmm. in terms of like coming up with the idea, but then also being able to like execute on those ideas. Mm. And so, um, it's like, there's a great Ted talk by this guy, Matt Ridley, I think is the, is the talk. And he's got, he coined this term called idea sex. And yeah, it's very, it's a very provocative term. And I think that like, you know, it's definitely got that going for it, but at its core, I think it's a really interesting idea. Like new ideas emerge from the sort of genetic recombination of ideas that have come before them Mm. in the same way that like, you know, each of your parents has a different genome and they come together to create you, which, uh, and you have a different genotype than anybody else on the planet you know like a like the unique snowflake that you are and so um yeah and so i think the same thing it's really interesting that the same thing happens with ideas you know instead of genes though they ideas are built on memes and new ideas emerge from the sort of recombination of the best parts of ideas that have come before them and so i like the term idea sex i think it's actually a very descriptive way of sort of visualizing how ideas happen yeah you know no, that's totally perfect. I mean, it's it really is. And a lot of the stuff that I've created, I mean, even this artwork here is, it's generations. I mean, I have these photographs that I've taken and then now it's it's coming down the line into more um, multimedia, multi-mixed media art. Yeah, and they're beautiful, by the way. Thank you. And I think that's happened with a lot of stuff. And that I, I'm kind of resonating with that now because a lot of the stuff that, is, that I'm creating in, in my life, in my career is a direct reflection a reflection of what you're saying yeah. it's it these ideas keep spawning and spawning and and but still with the same dna yeah yeah so let's go back a little bit i also uh, what picked up on what you said about current uh, it's a little bit a different segue but how about how current was you were using that as a way to pay your bills while yeah. you were working on other stuff yeah um, how did you even go back before that when you're coming out of college, how did you pay the bills be- even before current while you were trying to get into the stuff that you want? Cause I know that's a big, you know, piece of our, our listeners here is like, <laughs> how do you do that? Yeah, man, we're going deep. Um, yeah. well, I mean, I could tell you that, uh, when I was in college, I, you know, I've always had a really supportive family, but they, uh, you know, it's always been my mom and my grandmother's mission to show me the value of a dollar, mm. as they always say. <laughs> and so they made me work for it. When I was in college, um, I valeted cars at a hotel mm. um, in Miami. Yeah, they, I didn't. I think I did it for like a year, and I actually had a great time doing it. And um, you know, I've never, <laughs> I've never had a problem with. Um, 
I don't know, like rolling up my sleeves and getting to work. And in college, like I, you know, to make extra money, I, uh, that's what I did. And it was fun. And then before that, I think freshman year, the only other job that I'd had before that was for two weeks. I worked at Abercrombie, yes. which was a, yes. <laughs> oh my God. The reveal. I feel like half of the listeners just like tuned out because I said the A word. <laughs> that freaking story. It, that was one of the worst experiences of my life. Um, but, you know, I think that like, whatever, I grew up in New York and when I went to high school, all the kids, all the cool kids in school were wearing Abercrombie. And so like at the time I thought that it would be something that I, you know, that was cool. And then I quit. Yeah. But I mean, the, the thing is, is you did that to get to where you need to be. It's yeah. not, you know, that's part of the story and part of how you got there. And, and I think it's good for people to know that, it, that, yeah, like sometimes you just have to like take whatever job you can do to pay the bills while you're gone for what you want. Yeah. A hundred percent in college, you know, in college, I, you know, like I didn't really, I don't think I had to have valeted cars. Like my parents would have subsidized my life there happily, but they wanted me to know the value of a dollar. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, that's what you get. Like my grandmother grew up in the depression, you know, yeah. like, and you know, it was born around that time or before. And, uh, you know, she didn't even graduate high school. She came, she was very poor growing up. My parents were also very poor mm. growing up. And so, um, you know, and growing up in, in Manhattan of all places, like Manhattan is a city where if you aren't making a lot of money, you know it, you know? <laughs> and so, uh, thankfully they, you know, that changed for them. You know, they were both entrepreneurs and, and they did pretty well, but they, I guess you can't change that mindset and I'm grateful for it. You know, like my whole life, like I went to public school here in New York, um, you know, and, uh, hung out with my, my best friends spanned the entire socioeconomic spectrum. Um, very grateful for mm -hmm. that. And, uh, and you know, in college I went to university of Miami, which is not a, not a cheap school. Um, you know, and it was paid for outright, you know, I don't, I don't have any student debt or anything like that. Um, but they wanted me to work for my beer money. So, so I had to valet cars, which, uh, which was a great experience, you know? So what was the coolest car you got to drive? Oh my God. Well, coolest car I got to drive. I mean, it's Miami. I mean, there's some, yeah, yeah. I will tell you, val having been a valet, I'm always very skeptical, skeptical, <laughs> skeptical about valeting my own car. Cause, uh, you know, I mean, these are guys that are like, they, you know, no disrespect to any valets out there. Okay. But I know that when you're, you know, driving something that's not yours, you don't treat it as if it were yours. And so, <laughs> um, but the coolest car, I don't know. I mean, I got to drive some pretty cool cars. Um, I think at the time I was pretty psyched about getting to drive a, uh, Mercedes G wagon, which, um, oh. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't like them anymore. You know, having, if you spend any time in LA, you realize that there's no official douche car, but if there were, it would be the Mercedes G wagon. Um, it's still a cool looking wagon. Though. It's a cool looking wagon. Yeah, yeah. It's a cool looking wagon. I love Range Rovers. I really love Range Rovers. Um, I like Audis, although my favorite car of all time, and this is going to be maybe a shock. My favorite car that I've never actually owned is a jeep wrangler oh yeah oh i've always loved them they're cool yeah they're I cool like i've never 
my 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 left brain you know like the more practical side of me has never actually allowed me to own one uh, but, um but those are cool cars i love it i love <laughs> it well let's let's jump into the next piece which i i'm really looking forward to uh talking to you more in depth about and i mean speaking of what you were talking about earlier is diving down that rabbit hole of what you're super inspired by and I'm, you know, what caught my attention too is, is it, when we were talking about this the other day, the, you know, brain health and yeah. Alzheimer's prevention, which is your new project. And my grandfather passed away from Alzheimer's. So it's oh, wow. a special interest for me too, to really, you know, hear where you're coming from and hear what we can do to prevent Alzheimer's. So yeah. Why don't you give us a little bit of synopsis of the project, the stuff that you're interested in and what you're advocating for? I guess yeah. that was three questions, but it kind of <laughs> wraps up into the one of what's the, what's the yeah, goal well, and vision here? Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I guess it sounds like this has sort of come out of left field for people that have been following me for a while, but, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the brain, the human brain the mind specifically. And I'm also a massive nutrition and health junkie. I've always been my whole life. Mm. Um, I haven't figured out, you know, up until now, I guess, how to work that into my professional repertoire. But I, uh, I've always intuited food as information and that sort of dictates everything that mm. I consume. You know, I'm not a big hedonic eater. I, I eat to sustain myself and to, um, you know, so that I can feel optimally i call myself an optimalist i'm very into sort of i'm chasing i've always sort of chased this idea of optimal health and how i eat and live and my lifestyle has always been dictated by the science that i'm up on at mm. the time um and so the brain health thing and the reason why i feel like a lot of people might think that it, i'm this is a topic that i'm talking a lot about lately uh so my my mother, who's 62, started showing signs of cognitive difficulty uh, a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, I'd say two, three years ago. And, you know, it's, uh, she doesn't have, she hasn't been diagnosed as having Alzheimer's or, or anything like that. But it sort of sent me on this journey of discovery and figuring out how a woman, you know, who had been sort of health conscious her whole life and has certainly raised me to be health conscious could have like, you know, memory issues that sort of appear from nowhere. And, um, and so that made me very conscious about my own brain health. Mm. And I, uh, had the pleasure of, you know, it's weird again, like ideas become platforms, you know, like just by virtue of talking so openly about this subject, uh, led to the Wall Street Journal doing this amazing piece with me mm. where they sat in on a session with me and an Alzheimer's prevention specialist to assess my own brain health. And that was a very fascinating um, thing to get to do. Mm. And since that article, uh, you know, a lot of sort of, you know, speaking opportunities and things have popped up. Um, in part because of this 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 journey, but, you know, in another sense, like, I think that you know, well, it sent me down the rabbit hole and I've learned a lot about brain health that I have become, I guess, very eager to, to mm. share, you know, um, for one that changes in the brain begin up to 25 years before the first Alzheimer's symptom. Mm. So if you're concerned about brain health, then the time to really start taking care of your brain is now. And a lot of people have this misconception that Alzheimer's is hereditary. It's actually not. 
hereditary and it is it can be prevented hmm. and so i don't know pushing that idea has been something that uh that has become very important to me yeah i can understand yeah. now how a let's let's go here first is when you guys when you did the wall street journal thing yeah um and you had your brain health tested yeah. how did they test it like what <laughs> what are you what are you evaluating what's the variables what is what does that even mean yeah so so one of the most powerful ideas that i've come across in my um you know research journey has been this idea that Alzheimer's and type 2 diabetes have striking similarities. Hmm. Um, that they've found the kind of metabolic disturbances in the brain, in brain cells, that they also can find in, the, you know, the muscles of, of type 2 diabetics, you know, hmm. of the, in the mitochondria, which is like the cell's powerhouse of yeah. type 2 diabetics. Um, and that dysfunction generally is, is characterized by insulin resistance. So... Um, so one of the ways in which they can test my brain health is simply by looking for markers of glucose and insulin resistance in the blood, mm. um, which they can find by seeing over the long term how much sugar is in the blood. Because insulin, this, you know, I'm, I'll try to sort of describe it in as simple a way as I can. Insulin is basically the hormone secreted by your pancreas that rings the dinner bell, letting cells all throughout your body know that there's sugar in the blood fresh for the taking. And so when cells become insulin resistant, uh, that actually leads to a rise in blood sugar and they can actually measure that hmm. uh, with, with different metrics over the long term. And so that's one of the ways. Um, and thankfully, I was pretty good in that department. Um, and I think that the reason why, again, I'm not an MD, but I, you know, I'm very interested in this topic and you know, I, I, I feel like it's been an obsession of mine for the better part of the past year. Um, you know, one way to keep your blood sugar low is to eat a, a low carbohydrate diet, especially a low sugar diet. Um, and that's something that I, that I do. So what kind of things do you cut out, uh, in terms of sugars, how much do you actually allow yourself to eat in terms of, you know, I, I, for myself, I've always been of the mindset of like, I don't want to, I don't want to sacrifice everything, but I also want to enjoy the stuff that I'm eating. Uh, like, so there's, is there some sort of balance in what you can eat, but, you know, cut back on at the same time? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's really good, first of all, to read labels. Mm. Um, I think that's incredibly important. And that's, that's something that I've done for as long as I could remember. Um, so you want to definitely cut out things like, you know, sugar. You've got to also know that sugar, uh, can take on many different names. Um, mm you know, organic coconut sugar is the same thing as sugar, you know, mm. um, high fructose corn syrup isn't the only thing that you should not be consuming. You know, high fructose corn syrup actually isn't that high in fructose in comparison to regular white table sugar. You know, it's yeah. about 50% glucose, 50% fructose. Um, agave is like the worst thing that you can consume and it's mostly fructose. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That's There's, like such an urban myth, huh? Yeah, it is. There's a fantastic article that you should Google. Uh, and the article, the headline is Agave, a triumph of marketing over science. Hmm. And it, it goes into detail about why, why that, why agave can be so dangerous. Um, yeah. 
so yeah, so I, I definitely do my best to avoid sugar. And it's good to familiarize yourself with the glycemic index. Mm. And if you're going to consume a carbohydrate-heavy food, uh, it's good to make sure that it falls lower on the glycemic spectrum, meaning that it affects your blood sugar less profoundly. Hmm. Um, and how would one know that that what that index is? And in, in you can Google it. it. Yeah, you can just okay. Google the glycemic okay. index and get a sense. I mean, what most people don't realize is that a slice of 100% stone ground whole wheat bread has a higher glycemic index than table sugar. Meaning like Jeez. a slice of whole wheat bread, which for the longest time I thought was like a staple of, you know, for a healthy diet actually affects your blood sugar more dramatically than table sugar. Wow. And so that's like a pretty profound insight, you know? Yeah. So is there different sugar, even like table sugar? Is there like, what about the organic raw sugar in the raw versus like really processed? Below the neck, it's all yeah, the same. it's all the same. Biologically, okay. it's all the same. Um, and so you want to do your best to limit sugar. I mean, a lot of people have this, you know, whenever I start talking about how you should avoid sugar, people are like, well, all things in moderation. And I'm like, well, if you want moderate health, maybe, you know, like there are certain things that you can cut out and yeah. feel great. And so I think that sugar is one of those things. And also to realize that even things that don't explicitly have simple sugars in them can be digested really rapidly and can also lead to problems down the line. So that's why I choose to eat, um, you know, as low carbohydrate a diet as I can. And, you know, I feel great. Again, I'm not a doctor. I'm not saying that everybody should, you know, but, um, but I find that with less fluctuations in my blood sugar, it allows your body to create, you know, glucose as mm -hmm. need be, you know? Yeah. And, um, and possibly even go into fat stores. And I think that that is an optimal, you know, way to be. I don't yeah. know. Like people have this, um, this really visceral image of the body as a car and carbohydrates being like the fuel for the car. You need fuel. I mean, certainly that's an image that, you know, Gatorade has helped perpetuate power bars, you know? Yeah. But, you know, they might be right in the sense that the body is like a car. It requires fuel, but the body is like the most advanced hybrid in the universe. So mm -hmm. to just, you know, throw fuel at it expecting for good results. I mean, that's not the way the body best performs. You yeah. know? Your body, you can, you know, throw a little bit of carbohydrates at it. Your body can make its own glucose out of protein and fat. It's a process called glucogenesis. Um, hmm. And then it could also go into your fat stores and use ketones for fuel. Wow. Yeah, which is a, ketones are a product of fat metabolism. So, um, so, yeah. So, fat metabolism, keystones, is that like a, is that something, how does that work in terms of losing weight and, and, because I know metabolism, obviously, like, if you're, I've noticed for myself, um, getting older, <laughs> and especially after I turned 30, I had to, like, do a lot of things, cut out, a, I cut out a lot of carbs for my diet, yeah. uh, which has tremendously helped. I've started working out, and then I started doing a little bit more, like, um, plyo training type of stuff, which was that body weight stuff, or? body weight stuff, kettlebells, just a little bit more. And I do it all like right here in, in, in my, uh, living awesome. room here. And I've noticed it has way more effect and it boosted, it's boosted my metabolism way more than just like going out for a run or huh. like for jump, jump, jump roping for 30 minutes. Yeah. Well, by building muscle, you, um, you can increase your basal metabolic rate mm. because you've got more muscle, you know, more mitochondria using up fuel. So I think, you know, I've always 
hated cardio personally. I hate running. Me too. Um, yeah, I hate running. I do yoga. I love yoga, mm. but I've always been a gym. Like, like when I'm in the gym, I'm lifting weights. Yeah. Um, I love it. Like I, I'm really into, I've always been into weightlifting and, um, and that's why I feel like I've been able to stay. Obviously I eat, you know, I, I watch what I eat for sure. But, um, but lifting weights is a great way to, to boost your metabolism, you know? Now does that burn sugar or it burns? Yeah. I mean, it, it athletes do have greater carbohydrate requirements for sure. Mm. So, I mean, the more muscle you have, the more leniency, you know, you can take in your diet in terms of carbohydrate intake. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, especially if you're like, you know, a marathon runner, if you're having a crazy intense workout, you know, you want to like have some simple sugars possibly yeah. after a workout. I think that there's there's research to show that that helps by, you know, replenishing muscle glycogen, um, which is basically like stored sugar in the muscle. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, just in general, like I, I used to be like a lot more intense in my workouts and I want to get back to that, but. <laughs> but lately I've really liked yoga and yeah. you know, that gets intense. So yeah, totally. So in the, in the realm of, uh, of preventing Alzheimer's and, and that kind of thing, what other things besides diet can you, can we do? Well, diet and exercise. Um, you know, again, this is like, it's a nascent science, but it's not that nascent that we need to ignore, uh, you know, research that shows that you know these sorts of things are preventable and that we can do things to benefit our brain i mean one of the best things that you could do for your brain the absolute best thing is probably physical exercise i mean most people don't know this but doing aerobic exercise you know and i love that i'm bringing this up after i've just said how much i hate aerobic exercise but (laughs) but aerobic exercise can actually cause the hippocampus which is the memory center of your brain to grow by two percent a year Wow. That's massively empowering. There's no known prescription drug that can do that. And another really interesting thing is that, which is something I've learned very recently, is that you actually have neurons, which are what brain cells are called, in your eyes. And the same benefit that exercise does to your brain cells also can do to your eyes. Exercise benefits the eyes. Wow. Also, which is really interesting. Yeah. That's fascinating. So I think, I think exercise, I mean, look, they, so there was a study that was unveiled this year. Um, it was a Finnish study, uh, and the acronym is finger. It was called the finger study (laughs) unveiled at Alzheimer's international Alzheimer's associations, international conference. Um, and it was a a long-term study where they took, I think it was like 1600 at risk adults and half of them got standard care and the other half were provided nutritional advice and a trainer exercise trainer mm. and they found that that the people that got the nutritional advice and the and had the trainer were able to stave off intellectual decline after only 2 years hmm. so i mean that study was it had, it had been speculated in the past that alzheimer's yeah. was preventable that you know whether or not somebody actually becomes demented is based on you know a ton of modifiable risk factors and epigenetics which is of course the interplay between our environment and our genes but this study actually like was a randomized control trial that that proved that Hmm. prevention is possible and um 
And so that's really exciting. You know, it's very empowering. Yeah, totally. So now what about people that are, you know, say it's a little bit older, gener- the next generation, like say our parents, what can they do to prevent? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it's probably similar, similar yeah. stuff, but they're a little bit further down the line than, you know, us in our 30s starting now. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, um, definitely exercise and and you know again i'm not a doctor but based on everything that i have read you know i think it's important to minimize inflammation mm-hmm. uh you know to eat you know a diet that has low glycemic carbohydrates um in them uh at the expense of the more rapidly digesting carbohydrates and to also consume healthful fats you know yeah there's a uh there's actually a hormone in the brain. Um, the acronym is BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor. And it's sort of like growth hormone for the brain. Actually, it's been dubbed miracle grow for the brain. And you mm. can boost that. It's in, present in everybody. And you can boost that um, by doing exercise and by consuming things like wild salmon, you know, DHA fats. Huh. Um, you know, we mustn't forget that the brain is made of fat. So it's important to like get healthy fats. I know a lot of, especially like the older generation and my mom is, you know, is one of them is, is kind of afraid of fat. Mm. Uh, but that, um, I think science has really thrown that whole idea of fat being harmful into question. Yeah. And, um, what kind of fats though? I mean, I think, are there different types of food? Yeah. I mean, I think coconut oil is very healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, even though it's primarily a saturated fat, I think, uh, that's good for you. That um, coconut oil is, is basically a specific kind of fat called a medium chain triglyceride, hmm. which uh, we were talking about ketones before from fat metabolism. It actually like gets converted to ketones and can act on the brain as a as sort of a ketone, um, providing an alternate fuel source to glucose. Hmm. Uh, uh, things like you know extra virgin olive oil, very high in you know monounsaturated fatty acids. Um, fish oil, avocado, things like that. I always, I'm a, I'm a carnivore, but whenever I, I'm eating red meat, I go out of my way to ensure that it's from a grass-fed cow. Mm. That's important. The fat profile of, of grass-fed meat looks a lot more like wild salmon mm. than it does the red meat that we've been, you know, uh, that we find ubiquitous here in the States, which yeah. generally comes from grain-fed cows. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So... I mean, those are all, you want to minimize inflammation as best you can. And you, uh, you know, can do that, you know, using, yeah, with your diet. So I guess explain inflammation. What, what do you mean by that? So inflammation is basically like a very natural part of the immune response. You know, when you get a cut or something, or if you bruise yourself, that area becomes inflamed. Mm. And it's really what is best used to sort of spot clean you know, infections and and bruising and stuff like that. Um, With a diet that's very high in simple sugars, you actually can promote systemic chronic inflammation. Okay. Um, Just, you know, your body dealing with the sugar, sugar sort of can damage things in the system. Mm. And so it leads to this sort of all over state of being inflamed. And it's not something that you can feel. Right. Um, but ultimately can lead to problems. And, you know, many, many doctors in the world of functional medicine uh, will say, you know, that inflammation is the cornerstone of all chronic disease. Mm. And so you can take steps to reduce inflammation by, 
you know, eating lots of omega-3s, you know, which counteract the inflammatory effect of omega-6 fats. Mm. Um, you know, you can eat, you know, carbohydrates from healthy sources, you know, like lower on the glycemic scale. Um, so kale, isn't kale a omega-3 something? Kale's, a, kale's just is a... Is that a myth? <laughs> kale is a very... No, there's no omega... Th- I mean, I don't think there are any omega-3s in kale. I mean... You do, an omega three is a fat, so kale's I think a fat a fatty free. Acid or yeah, I mean kale's super healthy. I think it has like more nutrients per calorie than any other vegetable or something like that. I could be uh-huh. pulling that out of my ass, but I I think that it's a very healthful. Um, there's actually a, a functional med doctor named Drew Ramsey who published a book recently called Fifty Shades of Kale about all the many <laughs> wonderful things that kale does for the body. And so interesting. So time to get your kale rage on. Yeah. I mean, I know living in, in Williamsburg, you're no stranger to kale. I'm sure it's, <laughs> I feel like <laughs> hey, kale I'm, is I'm everywhere. A, I'm a days. kale junkie. I love it. Yeah. It's good for you. Um, another, I had another question. What stevia, is it stevia or stevia? stevia yeah. What, what's the rage on the stevia stuff? <laughs> and is it good for you? Is it bad for you? Is it whatever? Yeah, I think it's good for you. I think, um, I'm, I can't recall exactly, but I, I feel like uh, you know, stevia, so basically stevia is a non-caloric sweetener that is derived from a root that is ground up and then it mm. provides this sweet thing. Some people complain of a bitter aftertaste. I personally really like stevia. Mm. Um, and so I think stevia is fine. It's the, it's probably the best of the, um, non-caloric sweeteners that are out there. Uh, how does, you know, it, how does that convert into sugars for your body? It doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. yeah, it's just it provides sweetness on the palate without actually affecting your blood sugar. Although there was a study that came out last week that um, made it across my newsfeed that I that I then shared that artificial sweeteners can lead to the same kinds of metabolic disturbances as mm. sugar. So it's, I mean, you definitely want to be careful. You know, I used to drink Diet Coke, again, thinking that it was benign, but it's not, you yeah. know. It, the sweetening, you know, the body is a very smart, you know, computer. And so it senses the sweetness. It, it, you know, it tells your pancreas to release insulin and, and that can, you know, lead to problems. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, I definitely will consume stevia. I can't lie. You know, if I'm at a Starbucks and I'm getting an iced coffee, I'll put a little bit of Splenda in it. I'm not, you know, advocating for Splenda or anything, but like I, you know, um, you know, I, I try not to go too nuts. I also like erythritol, which is not something that, yeah, it's a, it's a sugar is. alcohol. It's in, it's basically a non-caloric sugar alcohol. Um, also in the, in that category are things like xylitol. Um, I don't know. There are a few other ones from sorbitol, but a few of them can create sort of gastric upset. Erythritol is the one that, uh, doesn't at all. Mm. And so, um, that's something that it's difficult to pronounce, but it actually is in a few products. Like I love, you know, I, if I'm on the road traveling and I, I can't, you know, uh, have a, find a healthy meal, I'll eat a quest bar and quest bars are, you know, again, I don't I have no vested interest in this company, but they, they're, those are protein bars sweetened with, um, a combination of stevia and erythritol. Hmm. I think Truvia is also sweet is a combination of the two. Oh, okay. Um, so I don't know. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. So in, in layman's terms, uh, what like the non what does non caloric mean? Means no calories. So there's no it doesn't, you know, there's no sugar. And therefore oh, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. 
So calories are derived from macronutrients, which, you know, a macronutrient, fat is a macronutrient, protein is a macronutrient, and carbohydrates are macronutrients. Yeah. Um, so stevia provides zero of any of the above, and so um, so there are no calories in it. Interesting. Yeah, no carbohydrates. Very interesting. Very cool. Well, so what's what's uh, Max's vision? Where, where are you headed? <laughs> Where am I headed? Well, after this, I'm headed to lunch. Um, but no, I, uh, yeah, I think that, you know, I'm going to continue to advocate for, for these sorts of things because I really, you know, I think that, um, that we have a lot more control over the health of our, of our brains and bodies, you know, really than, than most people would like to assume, you know, we're not tied to our genes. Um, I'm obsessed with epigenetics and, uh, and I think that ultimately medical expertise is going to become, there was a headline recently in, you know, MIT's technology review that medical expertise is going to become a commodity. You know, it's, we're going to have doctors on our smartphones. And so I think that, um, that that's one thing. It's another thing to like, to actually engage with all the information that's out there. And I think that that, um, it's important, you know, for people to sort of be inspired that they can yeah. actually like you know control their health and so that's something that i'm you know pursuing like just this idea of like getting people to take back their health love that yeah that's great and i continue to write i continue to you know like produce uh tv and you know web stuff and so there's a lot of really exciting stuff that's bubbling i implore all of your listeners to follow me on twitter and um you know i give i give updates about my latest stuff and speaking gigs and so there's a lot going on um and i can't wait to share Awesome. So one last question that I love to ask everyone on the show is what does live inspiration mean to you? Man, what does live inspiration lead to me? mean to me? Uh, I think that it means wearing your passion on your sleeve mm. and, and letting that be your guide. Um, following your bliss, you know, yeah. taking risks, um, not being afraid to you know, appear vulnerable and to ask for help mm. and to share the inspiration, you know, like don't keep that shit bottled up. It's good stuff. You yeah. know, um, inspiration is contagious. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And so that would be my answer. Love it. That's great. So where can we find you online on the internets, Twitter, Instagram, website, where, how can people get in touch? Yeah. So the handle is just my name, Max Lugavere. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, you know, that's it. That's spell, about it. Spell Lugavere. L-U-G-A-V-E-R-E. Perfect. Well, awesome. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, I'm Nick. inspired. It was great having you. Same, man. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for checking out today's episode of Shop Talk Radio with Max Lugavere. I am your host, Nick Onkin. And if you want to check out the show notes on the show page, shoptalkradio.com slash EP32. There's also the photos from the photo shoot I did with Max there. If you were inspired by the show, we'd love it if you would help us inspire even more people by leaving us a good review over on iTunes, Facebooking the episode, tweeting, and we'd love to hear and see where you are listening to the show. So you can hashtag Shop Talk Radio or at Reply Me at Nick Onkin on Instagram. And with that, we will see you next time. 
start as someone who loves with above average intensity, fall so in love with people and with things that you forget to even sleep, stay up all night reading a certain book or listening to a certain song or gazing into a certain person's eyes or just pacing back and forth thinking about whatever it is you can't stop thinking about, know what it's like to lose all control over the operation of your mind, see abyssal profundity where others see only surface, experience moments in which the whole universe seems to close in around you and your head feels like an astrolabe and you feel the entire concentric cosmos click together into one unified image of perfect beauty and harmony and all you want to do is hold it in your mind forever and fall down on your knees worship it. Start to see this image more and more frequently, often at inopportune moments. Feel its beauty morph slowly but inexorably into terror. Start looking for ways to drown it out. Settle on booze and drugs and deafening music. Go to bed every night drunk enough to pass out immediately, but then wake up at 5am. Feel it bearing down upon you once again. Press your face into your pillow and weep. With fear. Slide into the dark period you knew was coming. Go for months feeling okay only when you're asleep. Open your eyes every morning just in time to feel the okayness seep out of you like blood from a stab wound. Stop checking your email because you know it'll just be your friends asking you if you're okay and you don't want to admit that you really aren't, but no, they won't believe you if you lie and say you are. Stop showering because it seems like too much effort to undress. Step outside on the first beautiful day of spring and think absolutely about how it does nothing for you. Feel like everything is impossible. Feel like doing anything at all would require greater suspension of disbelief than you are capable of. Feel burning itches in places like the lining of your stomach and the backsides of your retina. Hit rock bottom, lose your job, flunk out of school, drive your car into a tree, wake up in a hospital bed and see your parents staring at you, weeping. Move back into the room you grew up in and spend weeks in your pajamas eating canned soup and staring at the ceiling. Feel as though you're lying on the ocean floor with seven miles of water pressing down on you. Let your mouth hang open because it seems like too much effort to raise your jaw. Feel nothing. Forget that you exist. Forget that anything exists. Feel like you have passed. psychiatrist, get on meds, start feeling a bit better, watch a sitcom with your parents and laugh a little, go for a walk expecting it to do nothing for you and find that it does a little, pull fresh air through your nostrils and feel something, feel after a few weeks a vague sense of coming out of something, feel a certain presence which you had taken for granted since before you can remember, start to pass out of you, see a bird flapping its wings on a telephone wire and laugh for no reason, wonder if this is what people mean when they talk about happiness.
place and realize that you had already begun to think of it as home, wondering if this is what people mean when they talk about emotional stability. Realize one day in the shower that the unmoving thing you've arrived at and the cosmic image that once drove you mad are all one in the same. Realize that it's just you, that all along it was just you and nothing more. Laugh at how stupidly obviously this seems now. Feel the unmoving thing settle into you, and you into it, and notice almost casually that for the first time in your life, you are completely without fear. Look at your reflection in the bathroom mirror and feel like you're seeing an old friend you haven't seen in ages. Realize that after years of false hopes, you finally arrived at something real, something that no one can ever take away from you. Realize that this arrival, which is what people mean when they talk about finding yourself, is not an end, but a beginning. You've nailed down the vital center, now for a lifetime of filling out the periphery. In the living through, then recollecting your own story, you've learned implicitly that there's a story coiled up inside of everyone and everything. Maybe you knew this all along. Maybe this is why you were so quick to fall in love with everything in sight. Maybe you sensed instinctively the overflowing fullness of all things too soon, before you were ready to grasp their interior complexity. Maybe when you were in love with things, what you were really in love with were not the things themselves, but rather something inside them that you could never quite get at, which is why you love them with such annihilating desperation, as if throwing yourself over and over against a locked door. But now that you've found yourself, now that you've fought for and won your emotional stability, you'll find that you've been granted a master key, as that unmoving thing was waiting all along for you to notice it, so too does the whole world now stretch out in all directions, patiently awaiting your discovering gaze, and so too does everything hold its story trapped in it like a spirit, waiting for you to utter the incantation that will release it. Don't be overwhelmed.